Greek myths and legends. Penelope and Telemachus When brave Odysseus was laid deep in slumber on the shores of Ithaca, he knew nothing of the dangers which faced his country. Loyal Penelope was ensconced in their palace at the mercy of over a hundred suitors, rulers from neighboring islands who wished to annex Ithaca. Telemachus had left the island in search of his father, and many of the suitors were involved in a plot to murder him upon his return. Laertes was alive, but old and troubled. When Odysseus woke, he knew not where he was. He was visited by Athene, who briefed him on the ills of his homeland, and who dressed him in the guise of a beggar, and led him to the hut of the faithful swineherd Eumaeus. Here Odysseus could plot and plan, prepare the tools of battle to make Ithaca his once more. When Odysseus awoke on the sands of Ithaca, a mist had fallen over the majestic land, and he knew not where he was. The Phaeacians had vanished from his sight, and he had only a groggy but pleasant memory of his visit to them. He should be at Ithaca now, he thought, but he could see nothing in the steamy air that enshrouded him. From the mists he heard a soft voice, familiar to Odysseus, but he no longer trusted in anything, and he sat back cautiously. You are in the land of the great warrior and traveler Odysseus, said the voice, which belonged to a young and comely shepherd. How do you not know it? Odysseus lied glibly about his reasons for being there, inventing a fantastic story that was quite different from his actual voyage. At this, the shepherd laughed and changing shape became Athene. So crafty, Odysseus, she smiled. What a rogue you are. The greatest gods would have trouble inventing such tricks. With that, she held out a hand to the weary traveler and led him across the sand. And led him across the sands. I've hidden you from your countrymen, she explained, indicating the mists which surrounded them. Things are not as you would have hoped. It is not safe for you now. You must tread slowly. She helped Odysseus to hide away his treasures and sat him down to explain to him the matters of his homeland. Penelope was still faithful to him, but time was running out, and she knew that if he did not appear to her within the next months, Penelope would have little, would have little recourse but to join herself with another. Telemachus was greatly angered by the insolent suitors who banded themselves at the palace, taking as their own everything that had belonged to his father and gorging themselves on the food meant for the people of Ithaca. It was an untidy situation, and Telemachus struggled to believe that his father was still alive. He had left the island for the mainland, desperate for news of Odysseus, never believing that his father could be dead. <coughs> He'd vowed to allow one year for news, failing which he would agree to the wishes of a stepfather and stand aside. In Greece, Telemachus was greeted with little interest and his attempts to uncover the whereabouts of his father were useless. Old Nestor, who knew everything about the war at Troy and had followed the lives of the great men who had made the victory there, he had, had heard nothing of Odysseus. He had disappeared, he said sadly, shaking his head. 
Determined, Telemachus pressed on to Sparta, where Helen welcomed the son of Odysseus but had little news to impart. Telemachus began to feel the first stirrings of despair and sat with his head pressed into his hands. When Menelaus returned to his home that evening, he found Telemachus like this and leaning over the youth whispered words of comfort. I too have wandered, he said gently, and news of your father has reached me through the minions of Poseidon. He went on to warn Telemachus of Poseidon's rage, explaining how Odysseus had blinded his one-eyed son, Polyphemus. Menelaus told how Odysseus had been cast upon the shores of Calypso, where he lived a life that was half enchantment and half longing for his past. Telemachus moved swiftly. His father was alive. A rescue must be planned at once, but most importantly, he must warn his mother. The suitors had moved in too closely. They must be disposed of immediately. At home in Ithaca, Penelope was also filled with a despair that threatened to destroy her. Her loyalty to Odysseus had kept her sane and filled her with a kind of clever glee which made possible the machinations of keeping the suitors at bay. She'd held her head low with humility and explained to the suitors who continued to arrive to take roost in her home that she must complete work on a cloth she was weaving before she could contemplate giving herself to another. She worked hours on end in the days, performing for the she worked hours on end in the days, performing for the suitors at her loom, giving them every belief in her excuse for not receiving their attentions. And yet at night she returned to her lonely bedroom, and there she sat by torchlight, unpicking the work of the day. And as the years went by, it became established knowledge that Penelope was not free to marry until she had finished her web. But Penelope was aware that her excuse was wearing thin, that the seeds of suspicion had been sown in the minds of her suitors, and that they were paying inordinate interest in her mechanics of the loom itself. It was only a question of time before they would insist on her hand and she would be forced to make a choice. Her property was being wasted, her lands falling to ruin, her stocks emptied by their marauding parties. She longed for the firm hand of Odysseus to oust them from their adopted home, to renew the sense of vigor that was required by her workers to make things right again. Most importantly, however, she longed for the warm embrace of her husband, the nights of passion, of sweet love. She had resisted the attentions of her suitors, but her body was afire with longing, and she burned at a single look, at a fleeting touch. Penelope was ready for her husband's return. Soon it would be too late. At the cottage of Eumaeus, Odysseus had been presented with a fine feast of suckling pig by the swineherd, who spoke sadly of his master's absence. He bemoaned the state of the island and explained to Odysseus in his disguise that the suitors visited his cottage regularly, taking their pick of the pigs so that his herd was sorely depleted. He said kindly that a beggarman was as entitled to a feast as were these inappropriate suitors, and he gave Odysseus his own cloak in which to warm himself by the fire. Odysseus told the loyal subject of a wild story, but did say that he had heard news of Odysseus and that, his, and that the great warrior would return to set his house in order within the next year. At this, the swineherd was filled with joy and produced more food and wine for his, 
for this bearer of good news. Odysseus settled in for the night. By this time, Telemachus had returned to the island, aided by Athene who had set out to greet him. He was taken to the cottage in darkness so as not to arouse the suspicions of the suitors who were plotting his death. Here, a tearful reunion was made, away from the eyes of the swineherd who had been sent to the palace for more drink. Odysseus was transformed once more into his old self by Athene, and Telemachus drank in the sight of his father, who he'd hardly known as a child. They sat together, heads touching, occasionally reaching over to reassure themselves of the other's presence, and the plans were made to restore Ithaca to her former glory, to rid it of the unruly suitors, to reinstate Odysseus and Telemachus at their rightful places at her helm.